Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Miami. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 692 for release on Sunday, May 29, 2022. In WaveScan today, Powell Crosley and his life story. Part 2 of Jonathan Marks' documentary about Aldrich Chip of Radio Prague. And much more. Self-identified as the nation's station and affirmed thus by public acclaim, Medium Wave WLW in Cincinnati, Ohio, celebrated its 100th anniversary on Tuesday, March 22, 2022. It was back 100 years ago, on March 22, 1922, that Powell Crosley received the formal license from the Department of Commerce in the federal government in Washington, D.C., and amateur broadcast station 8CR, became the now more familiar WLW. Here's Ray Robinson with the story. Thanks, Jeff. So here in WaveScan today, we're honoring station WLW for its remarkable century of growth. And in our first topic in this mini-series on the WLW story, we begin with the adventurous commercial life story of Powell Crosley III himself. Powell Crosley was born in Cincinnati, Ohio on September the 18th, 1886, as the first of four children. His father, known as Powell Crosley II, was a prominent lawyer, and his mother Charlotte, whose maiden name was Utz, was an accomplished pianist as well as a capable mother. During the year 1899, at the age of 12, young Powell Crosley designed and built his own primitive motor car. He later studied law at the University of Cincinnati, though he gave that up and began the commercial manufacture of motor cars in Connorsville, Indiana, at the age of 21 in the year 1907. Three years later, in 1910, the 24-year-old Powell Crosley married the 21-year-old Gwendolyn Aiken in a church ceremony in Muncie, also in Indiana. During the year 1921, Powell Crosley began his first venture into the newly developing field of commercial radio, designing and building the Harco radio receiver that sold for $7. But just four years later, by 1925, Crosley was operating a highly successful radio factory, acknowledged as the largest manufacturer of radio products in the world at that time. In subsequent years, the Crosley factories also made refrigerators, the famous Shelvador, small motor cars in various economy models, and even airplanes, was one called the Moonbeam. His car factories were located in the Indiana cities of Richmond and Marion. The first Crosley radio factory, if you could call it such, was in the family home at College Hill in Cincinnati. That was back in the year 1921. During the following year, 1922, Crosley transferred his manufacturing of radio parts into a commercial location at 1625 Blue Rock Street, still in Cincinnati. After a few other moves and expansions and the purchase of other related companies, the Crosley Radio Factory was operating in a new building at the corner of Colerain and Sassafras Streets. 
It has been ascertained that during the year 1926, for example, the Crossley radio factories employed 3,000 staff and they were manufacturing 5,000 radio receivers a day. Three years later, he took over a new eight-storey factory building at Gilbert and Arlington Streets. During the year 1934, Crosley purchased the professional baseball team, the Cincinnati Reds, in order to maintain the continuation of their sporting events in Cincinnati. Sadly, in 1939, his beloved wife Gwendolyn died at the young age of 48 at their winter home in Sarasota, Florida. She'd suffered from ill health for some time. Also in 1939, Powell Crosley was introduced to the multitude of spectators at the Indy 500 car race at the Speedway in Indianapolis, Indiana. By the end of 1941, when the United States entered World War II, the Crosley car factories had already turned out 5,757 small model motor vehicles. But in 1942, and for the duration of the war, production at both the car and radio factories was turned towards wartime needs. After the end of the war, the Crosley factories returned to producing radio receivers and motor cars for the civilian population. After 14 wifeless years, the 66-year-old Powell Crosley married again in 1952, this time to the 40-year-old Eva, though three years later she also died. It was around this time that Crosley himself exited from all of his business enterprises. And then just six years later, on March 28, 1961, Crosley also died of a heart attack in Cincinnati. The 74-year-old Powell Crosley was a remarkable character, a man who ranks just as highly as other American entrepreneurs, such as Henry Ford of motor car fame, Andrew Carnegie with his steel factories, Thomas Edison with his electricity ventures, Bill Gates with his computers, and for that matter, any other major entrepreneur in the history of the United States. In the next part of this mini-series of topics on the Crosley story, we plan to present the 100-year history of his magnificent medium-wave station, WLW. Back to you, Jeff. Thanks very much, Ray Robinson at KVOH in Los Angeles. Well, last week on Wayscan, we had the first part of a special media network program by Jonathan Marks dedicated to the late Aldrich Chip of Radio Prague, who was chief engineer at the station and also became chairman of the High Frequency Coordination Conference. Today, we're happy to present part two of that documentary. In February 1948, the government of the country went socialist. Forward Left, a theme still used by Radio Prague today, became the marching song of the new communist state. But as the 50s started, some people became disillusioned. But as it happened also with Stalin, who also wanted to get rid of everybody around him, who was just a little bit suspicious to him, yes, so it started in Czechoslovakia. So in the beginning of the, of the 50s, the big bosses of the communistic parties were accusing the other big bosses of the communistic party of, of other posts uh, that they are bad, that they are uh, collaborating with the imperialists uh, abroad, and so on and so on. So you got really very big people uh, who were hanged 
And that is what happened. And it was still worse and worse and worse. And this must, of course, affected things like press censorship and also the, the yes. ability for uh, academics and to write freely. Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the censure was, 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 was terrible. Fifteen years after the socialist state had been founded, some of the controls began to loosen up. This was to culminate in the Prague Spring. About halfway to the 60s, it started because then you get, of course, the new generation after some time. Uh, and the new generation always thinks that they know how to do things. So luckily, so they start a little bit this, a little bit that, and it turned to better. And it was a gradual process, uh, I think from about 65. How did you notice it? I mean, what, what did it mean? Um, because people dare to say more things, because uh, writers wrote more things. There was in 67, there was a Congress of Writers, uh, where, for instance, Kundera, the known one, who was actually communist in 48, <laughs> started to make good, uh, good words for Kafka and publishing Kafka and these kind of things. And that was possible. Now, this, of course, must have worried the Russians. Yes. Yes. Well, perhaps in the beginning, not yet too much, because nobody knew what was going to happen. But when the Prague Spring really started, and uh, really with quite big ideas... Uh, of Dubček to uh, cooperate with the West and so on, also economically and, and everything. Then I think they got really, uh, well, I'm sure they got very worried and that's why they came. On the night between August 20th and 21st, 1968, the invasion of Czechoslovakia began. Several hundred thousand troops were deployed from five Warsaw Pact countries. The action uh, was uh, very well timed because, um, you know, it is always the surprise which counts. And the surprise was very big because it happened in the middle of the night. Of course, uh, some of our big um, bosses, uh, Dubček and some more people, have already had some discussions with the Russians. Um, they knew it wasn't so easy to continue, but the Russians never said no. So it was a big surprise. Uh, when at the airport, uh, middle in the, of the night, the Russian uh, airplane landed, but took over the airport. Uh, took over, of course, I mean, not, not straight away, but uh, the person who was there was just commanded to do that and to do that. And after this first airplane, huh, another came, another came, and about every one or two minutes, another came. And from the, or out of the airplanes, rolled out the tanks. And they went straight to Prague. So the people were sleeping in Prague. Huh, so nobody knew anything, and you heard the roaring of the tanks. Huh. The surprise is, of course, terrible. It wasn't just the Russians that came, and there were troops from other countries. Yes, but they came actually later. I think there's the first troops at the airplane that were Russians. The first Soviet military plane which had landed at the airport simply guided all the rest in. But they forgot about the man in the telex room, who started sending out reports on what he could see to people he knew in Western Europe. <laughs> The domestic service of Radio Prague announced at 10 to 2 in the morning that it had an important message to convey and those listening were to wake their fellow citizens. Eight minutes later, the announcer reported that three hours before, troops had crossed the Czechoslovak border. And what was a very uh, big thing that, that made us terribly cross in Czechoslovakia was that also the East Germans came because, you know, we have been, of course, occupied by the Germans. Yeah? And then the Germans 
come again in 68 huh? with their army. I mean, that, that, that was a terrible thing. Within hours of the invasion, several clandestine transmitters were on the air, including a local one in Budovitz, which told the East Germans they were needed back at home, not in Czechoslovakia. Aufruf an die Soldaten der deutschen Volksarmee. Soldaten im Namen der Interessen der internationalen Arbeiterbewegung. That was a very bad thing. I mean, if Russians prepared it, very good action. But if they would have had a little bit more psychological know-how, they wouldn't have allowed this. But there are some reports looking through the, the, the archives indicate the, some of the troops didn't even know where they were. I think most of them didn't know. Of course, the commanders did. But the, the soldiers didn't know. Huh? They were just told that they were going to a country which had a very strong contra-revolutionary group. They didn't know which country it was. They didn't know in which town they were. Because our people, huh, they didn't make uh, any resistance with, with weapons, huh? but they just went to all the soldiers and spoke to them. And the soldiers asked them, where are we? Radio Prague came on the air at 4 o'clock in the morning on the 21st with full details of the invasion. They reported that the Russians had set up a clandestine station a few hundred metres from the Prague radio station, calling itself Radio Voltova, after the river which flows through the historic city. Broadcasting on 1428 kHz medium wave, the pro-Soviet station spoke poor Czech and broken Slovak. Although the reports of the time said it came from inside the country, Radio Voltova was probably broadcast from a transmitter in East Germany. On February the 12th, 1969, when the need for the clandestine station was over, Radio Berlin International appeared on the same frequency. Voltova later became the name of one of the Czech radio networks, still in operation today. But back to Wednesday the 21st of August, 1968. At 7.35, Radio Prague reported that six Soviet tanks were surrounding the station building and that if the studios were taken over, the last thing they would do would be to play a tape of the national anthem. The tape went out a minute later and the station left the airwaves. can hear that the tape was hardly put on. But not all was lost. Western news agencies reported that Czech youths had taken down all the street signs in the capital to confuse the enemy. Yes, not only the students, I mean the whole uh, town and, and, and everywhere, the people. Uh, and nobody, the funny thing is that nobody sent a message to the others to do that. It was just an idea and then the people heard, oh, there they have taken the boards down, so we do also. So in the towns, but also in the country, yeah, the things were turned round, the directions were wrong, uh, they were just written, uh, Moscow this way, Moscow this way, Ivan go home, uh, uh, go away. Uh, so the people couldn't go through the country, I mean they could go, but they didn't know where they were going, where they had it to. Sometimes they just went uh, in a circle. What about communications during this period? I mean, were the telephones cut? Uh, controlled. Not cut, but controlled. I mean, you couldn't uh, call abroad or anything like that. Some reports were reaching abroad, though. 
Radio Moscow's English service said Russian noble assistance, as it called it, had been requested. The commander has pointed out that the fraternal socialist countries consider it their highest internationalist duty to support the peoples of Czechoslovakia in defending the gains of socialism. Urgent help, including the assistance of armed forces in response to a request from Czechoslovak party and state officials, was given because all the achievements of the Czechoslovak working people of the past 20 years but these reports were counteracted by Radio Prague's Foreign Service, which returned to the airwaves on Thursday the 22nd of August. In the early 60s, long before any invasion plans were dreamed of, the Soviets had supervised the construction of a clandestine broadcasting network throughout Czechoslovakia. They thought troops from West Germany might invade, and so a network of mobile standby transmitters was set up and given to the Czechoslovak army to maintain. Once the Soviets turned out to be the aggressor, the mobile transmitters were handed over to the Czechoslovak resistance. Radio Prague's external service lost no time in setting up mobile transmissions on 6055 kHz, which were well heard across Europe despite the reduced power. This is Radio Prague, Czechoslovakia, broadcasting continuously in English, French, German and Italian, as well as Czech, and bringing you late news bulletins and reports as we receive them of the situation here in occupied Czechoslovakia. We are transmitting in the 49 meter band on 6.055 megacycles. However, since this frequency is being jammed, please tune us in by turning slightly to the right or left of this position on your radio dial it didn't take long for the Soviets to start jamming Radio Prague. That's what some of the jammers sounded like inside the country. But to be effective abroad, jammers in the Soviet Union, carrying the Moscow Mayak music program, were used to blot out some of the low-power clandestine stations. <laughs> On other transmissions, the jamming wasn't at all effective, leaving listeners in the rest of Europe with a fascinating live account of what was happening, like this English newscast on the second evening after the invasion. Czechoslovak news agency announced a short while ago that four leading representatives of Czechoslovakia's political life have been abducted from the building of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia in Prague and taken to an unknown destination. They are first secretary of the party, Alexander Dubček, chairman of the National Assembly, Josef Smirkovsky, chairman of the National Front, Dr. František Krigl, and Dr. Josef Špaček, all of them members of the Presidium of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia. Sad news has reached us from the North Bohemian town of Liberec, where deplorable incidents and conflicts with the occupation armies have taken place today. The clash is reported to have ended with six dead and 47 wounded Czechoslovak citizens. The East Slovak town of Košice tonight gives the impression of a frontline city. In the main square, young people using Molotov's cocktails 
set two Soviet vehicles on fire. Soviet units opened fire and they, there were several casualties. According to unverified reports, there have been about 10 dead and more wounded, including Soviet soldiers. to excuse any possible slips of the tongue but I am translating straight from uh, a slip of a Czech text. According to information of uh, eyewitnesses, uh, the chairman of the Czechoslovak government, uh, Mr. Olzich Czernik, was uh, taken uh, in a Soviet uh, armed transporting vehicle at about 17 hours uh, this afternoon to an unknown destination. The Czechoslovak news agency also informs us that shortly after 20 hours uh, Central European time, uh, the Soviet troops or other occupying troops entered the building of the National Assembly in Prague. However, deputies of the National Assembly, which is Czechoslovakia's parliament, are reported to be continuing the discussions. The Soviet news agency TASS said the broadcasts of Radio Prague were coming from agitators in West Germany. Direction finding in the West didn't support that argument. Meanwhile, jamming equipment was being transported into the country. The next recording is rather weak, so we've transcribed the Radio Prague transmission. Czechoslovak railway men last night stopped a train carrying spotting and jamming equipment designed to interfere with the free and legal Czechoslovak radio to which you are tuned now. The train was stopped about 100 miles east of Prague. Today, the presidium of the party decided to take over the municipal radio and run it under the name of the Central Committee Free Radio. From Plitzin, West Bohemia, it is reported that the free and legal Czechoslovak studio there continues to work unmolested so far. But what about other Czech and Slovak-speaking voices on the air at the time? Hlásí se vám Československá stanice rozhlasu Svobodná Evropa se svým českým a slovenským vysíláním. The sound of Radio Free Europe in Munich run by the Americans. Did that station have the same sort of revolutionary influence like it did during the Hungarian uprising of 1956? Jana Baranova again. People do listen to Free Europe quite uh, quite very well but I don't think it, it had really such a big influence um, for for the Prague Spring I don't think so I think that came really very much inside from Czechoslovakia but it, it was not so that they were trying to I don't know make the people enthusiastic to do something else and so on. no that that was really that happened really from the Czechs uh, themselves listeners with radios tuned between six and seven megahertz could hear a continuous babble of free radio stations even if you didn't understand Czech, the voices conveyed the emotion. Many transmissions were made using amateur radio equipment. Radio Prague continued to maintain its independence. 
This is our third morning in occupied Czechoslovakia, and though we have not had much sleep, even though we are all very tired, we are still holding out. We are doing everything to defend ourselves. This is the third morning of occupation, yet the occupation forces have still not succeeded in setting up a puppet government. We are holding out on all sides, even though others are using the most modern means to silence our free radio station. We still do not know where Alexander Dubček is, but all of us are with him. The motto of our state is, truth shall prevail. We know that our truth will prevail. It was amazing that the transmissions went on as long as they did. Radio Prague was heard to broadcast to comrades in Yugoslavia. They didn't have anyone on staff who spoke Serbo-Croat, so they tried French and Italian instead. The appeal was to stations in Yugoslavia to pass on the news to the rest of the world. Clearly they didn't know the other language broadcasts were getting out. A great deal of the stuff I have been reading was translated straight from Czech. I hope you will uh, excuse me for that, and I hope to be on the air again uh, with some more news from Radio Prague, Czechoslovakia. That was a portion of a documentary by Jonathan Marks of Media Network dedicated to the memory of Ulrich Chip of Radio Prague. We'll have more of that documentary on a future edition of Wavescan. And if you want to find other programs on the media network Vintage Vault, you can find them on the web at Jonathan Marks, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-M-A-R-K-S dot Libsyn, that's L-I-B is in Bolivia, S-Y-N dot com. Well, Prithraj Pukayastha informs us that uh, for reasons uh, beyond his control, he's not able to provide the Indian DX report to us today, so we'll have that on an upcoming wave scan. Thanks very much for listening to WaveScan today, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week on WaveScan, the medium wave scene in the Canadian province of Manitoba. Also our Japan DX report. Several QSL cards are available for WaveScan. Send your AWR and KSDA reception reports for the program to the AWR address in Thailand, I'll give you in a moment, and also to the station your radio is tuned to, WRMI or WWCR or KVOH or Voice of Hope Africa, or to IRRS Italy, or to the AWR relay stations that carry scan. Remember, too, you can send a reception report to the DX reporters when their segment is on the air here in the program. They'll also verify with their own colorful QSL card. Return postage and an address label are always appreciated. Here's the email address for AWR QSLs, qsl at awr.org. The postal address for AWR QSL cards, 
is Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakadong, that's P-R-A-K-A-N-O-N-G, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. Again, Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakadong, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. And the email address for other correspondence to WaveScan is wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI for the last time recording at our studio in Miami as we're moving all of our operations up to Okeechobee. Till next week, good listening, everyone. <laughs>